everybody. Welcome to today's One Million by One Million Investor Podcast. Today we're speaking with Hussein Kanji from Hoxton Ventures. Hussein, welcome to the show. Very, very nice to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. So let's uh, get you acquainted with our audience. Tell us about your fund, your investing focus, how big is the fund, what size investments do you like to make? Yeah, absolutely. So we, uh, I've run an early stage venture capital fund in, in London uh, that invests in European technology companies that we think are going to turn out to be global winners in, in, their, in, the, in the economy. Um, we mostly do new products and new market categories in terms of investments. Um, we're a $40 million fund. Uh, we just turned four years old. Uh, at the very end of November, so we're we're still fairly young, um, and we have a few investments that have turned out to be much bigger than I guess we are. Um, one of our most iconic investments right now is a company called Deliveroo, which is a food delivery company that's both in London as well as Hong Kong, Singapore, Dubai, etc. Um, and then we have a few other companies that have also turned out to be fairly big companies, uh, including uh, Dark Trace and Babylon Health. Um, gives you a little bit of a snapshot as to what we do. And we're early investors. Our typical check in these companies is anywhere from half a million to $2 million. And what, um, when you come into a venture, what do you like to see um, already in it in terms of validation and, you know, what are the ingredients that you're comfortable with? So we've done everything from sheet of paper investing to things that are a little bit later stage. Later stage, and they're still early, but you know they, they have maybe early revenue. Um, you know what we look for more than anything is that the company is operating in a brand new market or a brand new uh, industry category that hasn't been formed yet. Uh, the question that we often ask or ask ourselves is what's changed in that economy or in that market that allows this company to get born today when it couldn't have been born before. Sometimes that's fundamentally technology-driven, as in, you know, you could not have built this thing because the technology behind it wasn't possible a few years ago. Sometimes it's because of some social or cultural change. Sometimes it's because of a whole series of changes that are happening at the same time. Um, so we look for evidence that there is a new market, and we're trying to find companies that are coming out of Europe um, that will be able to hold their own, because usually when these opportunities present themselves, multiple companies get born uh, to try and capitalize on the opportunity, and a bunch will tend to get born in the U.S. or Israel or India. And we want to make sure the company that we're picking is likely to become number one in that category because we think venture returns flow to the number one uh, company in the space. Um, and then we look at the people. And oftentimes when we're investing, these, you know, these companies are very small. Sometimes they're just the founders. Sometimes they're about 10 or 20 employees. So we don't even, and, and if they're founder, uh, if they're if they're just the founders, you know, the founders themselves sometimes tend to be younger or inexperienced because this might be their first big company that they're building. So we look a lot at who they hire around themselves, and we find that's a better indication of quality about the founding team uh, than than anything else. So we, we while we look at people's backgrounds and we look at the team, we we really look at who's kind of joined uh, the company, and you know, if someone is quit a very senior job at Google to come, you know, work on the same project with, with the founders, you know, that's a pretty impressive signal for us. Uh, so that, that's, that's, what we, that's what we do. And what about sector? You, you mentioned both uh, B2C and B2B. Is that an accurate observation? 
Yeah. So in Europe, there isn't a lot of density of, of great companies. So, you know, you can think of you can think of lots of great American technology companies. Uh, you know, in Israel, like I said, produces a ton. But, you know, Europe doesn't produce nearly as much. Um, and so we're not sector specialists. We've we've taken a view that we're, we're we think there's about one to maybe three companies every year that are born uh, that will turn out to be these billion dollar type, you know, outlier companies in across Europe. And we want to make sure we're a shareholder in all of those. Uh, and those are usually not clustered in any one area. So our best company is a B2C company, which is Deliveroo, which is food delivery. Our next best company is a cybersecurity company, uh, which does anomaly detection or threat detection on the network, which is a B2B company. Um, the next company after that is an artificial intelligence healthcare company that's both a B2C company as well as a B2B company. Um, you know, so our portfolio is pretty diverse. We're just trying to make sure if one of these companies that could be number one in its category and is inventing this new category is born in Europe, we want to be an investor. Okay. That's uh, helpful. So um, double-clicking down on that, geography is all of Europe then? Yeah, we invest all across Europe. So we have done a deal... We've, we've, a lot of our deals have been in the UK just because there's a ton of innovation that comes out of the UK relative to the rest of the continent. But we have a deal in Frankfurt. We have a company in Vienna, uh, in Austria, which is not normally a place you think of. And the company is doing phenomenally well. It's in the travel space. Sorry, we are uh, losing you a little bit. Um can you hear me? Pan Europe. Yeah, I can hear you. Did did I lose you? Yeah, we Go lost a, a little bit of um, what you were saying, but uh, you said there was a company in Vienna in the travel space. So I'm actually going Culture. to double-click down on some of these different types of businesses that you've invested in and ask you a few questions just to understand your thought process and how you're processing these. So okay, what sure. is it about a delivery company that is, so unique. You know, there are delivery companies all over the place right now in every continent and every country there are delivery companies and some of them are scaling well. So why is this particular company so special? So Deliveroo is one of the early ones in this kind of new wave of delivery companies. And like I said, when there's a brand new market that gets enabled, there's usually, you know, tens of companies that get formed trying to trying to build on that on that market or capitalize on that market. What we thought was most interesting about Deliveroo was there was a company way back in the in the mid '90s, early 2000s, during the dot-com bubble, called Cosmo, and Cosmo yep. tried to do delivery services in New York, yes, and it didn't I work because mm-hmm. yeah, most of us are a little bit older. Remember, um, the younger millennials usually don't remember, but uh, nah, Cosmo didn't work because they were trying to do it with with in a pre-smartphone era with pagers. You know, two-way pagers is how they ran their delivery right. uh, couriers across. It's very hard to run an efficient delivery is all about efficiency and how many deliveries you can do an hour. The more deliveries you can do an hour, the more you're likely to pay the cost of the driver and then pay the cost of running the business. And so it is all it's an efficiency or utilization driven business. Doing this pre-smartphone was tough. When the smartphone came out, it would make sense to do a delivery model. And it wasn't even just the smartphone. It was the fact 
that you had the accelerometer and the gyroscope built into the smartphone. So basically the Fitbit level technology into the phones, which gave you even more precision about the, the, the delivery because now you didn't have just the GPS, but you knew if your driver was on the scooter, on the bicycle, or walking uh, around. And if they were walking around trying to find the house number that they couldn't find, and even if they were spending five minutes, you know, trying to do that, you know, that's significant enough on a delivery basis to to be able to, you know, to be able to cost you time, right? So, like I said, it's all about yep. utilization. So, so delivery built a ton of technology uh, around this, and they specifically chose cities uh, in the world. They started in London, and they didn't go to North America. They went to the rest of the world that were very mm-hmm. dense. As, as cities go and density is, is a huge driver for them because when the city or a neighborhood is dense, it means that their drivers don't have to do very long duration trips, which means that they can do multiple deliveries an hour. And they were pretty right. articulate in how they how they expressed why they didn't want to go to North America and why they wanted to go to, to, to the rest of Europe, which has tons of cities that are denser than Chicago, not as big as Chicago, mm-hmm. but denser, and why they wanted yep. to then go into Asia, which builds up. Um, so we believed, and like all venture investors who believe, we we wrote the check, and, and then yep. the rest is, you know, they've done phenomenally well. The company's worth over $2 billion now. It is by far the market leader in this food delivery space when and when it comes to running your own fleet. There are lots of other copycats, uh, lots of other people trying to do it, but because this is a scale business, when you get to scale in a city, it's actually very hard to displace the company because it just becomes, it means that their fleet and their network of drivers are just so much more efficient uh, than everybody else's because they're able to do more deliveries per hour um, that it's hard to dis- it's hard to displace unless you're going to throw tons and tons of money at it. So they kind of have a okay. winner-take-all um, yep. uh, opportunity ahead of them. Um, and we're, we're very Switching, happy to investors. Uh, and- yeah, go ahead, finish up. Oh, and and now what they're doing is they're building their own kitchens, these own their own industrial kind of kitchens, and they're going to restaurants and saying, look, in this particular neighborhood, you don't have enough restaurant. We know that people are looking for your restaurant, but you don't have a restaurant in place. Instead of spending all this money building a restaurant, why don't you come and cook on demand in our kitchen? And it just gets output for deliveries. They're building a bunch of these mm. now around the world, and, and this is yet another kind of new thing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, switching uh, gears, you have invested in a cybersecurity company. Now, this is a field that is incredibly crowded. You know, I've been in this industry for more than 20 years. And uh, from the beginning of time, cybersecurity has been one of the venture capitalists' favorite areas of investment. It, It attracts immense amount of funding and immense amount of entrepreneurship, actually. So what is it about your investment that is, particular and how do you assess a cybersecurity deal to make a selection? Yeah, so when we started our fund, we were pretty convinced that cybersecurity, this is four or five years ago now, that cybersecurity is going to be really interesting as an investment category because if you think about it, the bad guys are the ones who are more likely to use the newest, greatest technology because that's how they get into the networks and the good guys will be, you know, will be kind of playing catch up. We happened to come across this company called Darktrace, uh, in, which came out of Cambridge, and the GCHQ, which is the UK's version of the NSA, 
And they had built some technology that allow you to build effectively what is like a home alarm system for a corporate network. So it's a, it's a piece of software and, 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 uh, that sits on the network that figures out if there's any intrusions or network breaches or anomalies that are happening in the network. And like any alarm system, if an alarm system rings too many times, you start tuning it out because you get too many false alarms right. and you don't take it seriously. They had figured out how to make this thing ring when there was actually real activity going on in the network. And there's a lot of science uh, or technology behind how they did this. And this was a new category. So there was lots of cybersecurity investments making the walls stronger, right, the perimeter security, but not as much in terms of figuring out if something is actually going on inside your network. And there were other venture companies that were funded trying to do exactly the same thing. Um, and they were all, you know, funded by really great venture firms. Battery had invested in one. I think Kleiner had invested in one. Um, and we were trying to figure out if this was best in class. So we called down a lot of uh, folks in the security industry who we knew in California, uh, one of whom was the chief scientist of Cisco's security division, Sourcefire, who then became the CTO at RSA. And kind of through our network, we were able to figure out that this was that this particular company may have an edge uh, against the market uh, and could more than hold its own. It had the potential to potentially be number one in that market. So we wrote, again, we wrote the check and, and the company has done phenomenally well. Most of its competitors have been acquired uh, for decent mm -hmm. amounts of money, but small amounts of money from a venture perspective. Uh, there was a company called Light Cyber. It got acquired by Palo Alto Networks for $190 million. There was a company called Capsita that was uh, acquired by Splunk for $300 million. And, and we are doing phenomenally well. We did about $120 million of bookings last fiscal year and about $40 million in revenue, um, and mm -hmm. we're growing super fast. So this looks like this, and it's worth, the company's worth about $800 million now. Um, this looks like it's going to be the home run winner in that space. So you're right, mm -hmm. cybersecurity is super crowded. So we don't look, you know, when we invest, we look at these new markets, and sometimes new markets in crowded, bigger spaces are new product categories. But this was the new product category that was being born, and you know, our view is when these new product categories get born, if the timing kind of all works out, you know, these things grow exponentially and become really sizable product categories after a few years, which is kind of what's yep. happening in threat detection uh, in this thing. Yep. Now, um, you mentioned the travel company out of Vienna. Now, yeah, as you pointed out, Vienna is not exactly the hotbed of startups in Europe. What is the genesis of this company, and how did this come about? How did the company come about, and how did you get into this business, this company? It's even more colorful. It's it started. The two founders uh, of the business are Australian, who one of whom had <laughs> moved to Vienna and then had married a local girl and then made Vienna or Austria's home. So it's two Australians in Austria that had founded this company. Um, they came from the tour space. So tours are, if you ever want to go on safari in Africa, the way you will do that is you'll Google safari in Africa. Most of the folks who provide tours, there are a few bigger companies, but it's most of them are boutique operators, and there are hundreds if not thousands of these boutique operators doing all kinds of things, sailing trips, Machu Picchu adventures, safaris. And nobody's taken up all that inventory and put it into one centralized database so you could actually do a search the same way you can do a search on Expedia or Booking or Priceline. And that's what they that's what they did. They came from that industry, so that helped a little bit. Mm. It took them about two years to get all these tour operators onto the platform, but they've gotten now hundreds of these tour operators, and I think we have about 20,000 tours uh, in, our, in our database. Um, and then we are, the company is called Tour Radar. It is 
the TripAdvisor because it has a review system for this. It is the Expedia with the front-end booking system, and it's the Amadeus, which is the back-end database uh, behind all of behind all of this tour industry. And it's doing incredibly well. Uh, you know, the revenues have gone up almost almost 20-fold from the time that we invested. Then uh, these tours are a great business. They haven't. It's the last part of travel that's gone online, right? Hotels have gone online, flights have gone online, but these tours have not gone online. And tours are a fifty billion dollar market every year, uh, most mm-hmm. of which is done over the phone or over these searches with these boutique operators. And there's a lot of value for a customer uh, in, in this business because to a customer, when you're booking one of these tours, you don't want to send a deposit of twenty five, thirty percent to to a tour operator that you've never gone uh, on a trip with before and hope that the person's going to be there. So there's a safety in terms of booking on a platform like this where you know, you're trusting the platform because you don't really recognize who the, the operator is and so you know you're somewhat protected. And the way we found out about this company was uh, one of our colleagues uh, who is a Facebook executive uh, who had sold his company to Facebook and was living in London had gone to Vienna uh, for a conference, had bumped into these guys had become very excited about this company, and he was a venture partner at a New York City venture fund called Betaworks. And he tried mm-hmm. to get Betaworks to seed this investment, but Betaworks doesn't do deals in Europe. Um, so he called us up and said, look, I met these great guys. They're phenomenal founders. It, this sounds like a super interesting business. So we booked a flight to Vienna uh, pretty much the next day and went down and spent some time with them. And it turns out it was a really interesting business, and we wrote the check. And then he subsequently ended up joining uh, the White House uh, and became the chief product officer uh, for for the office of the CTO in the White House. So very, cool. yeah. So very, <laughs> very cool really story. Interesting uh, story. <laughs> so um, switching gears a bit, um, Hussein, I would like to talk a bit about the trends that you are seeing in your deal flow. So you've been in business for about four years, how many deals do you see in a given year from your various sources? So in a, in a given year, we probably see about 1,500 to 2,000 investments, but that's not okay. a very good number from our perspective because, again, we're only really interested in the companies that are going to become these blockbuster type companies, and most of what we see doesn't fall into that camp. I would say, yeah. you know, for the one to three blockbusters that we think are born every year in Europe, there are probably about 10 or 20 potentials. And so we monitor that number much more than we monitor the, you know, do we see 1,500 is just, it just sounds like a Well, no, the question that I was getting at through that number is what are the trends that you're seeing? Like what is Europe getting good at? What kind of companies are being formed in Europe? So the big meta trend is compared to when we started four years ago, there is a ton more stuff in Europe. Uh, so the market has really matured. Uh, people are much more comfortable building companies than they ever were before uh, at a high level. We've seen tons of stuff in fintech. And the reason for this is the UK regulator, uh, who the banking regulator, has made it very easy for people to build next generation banks in the UK. The amount of money that you need to put on to be able to, to get the license is significantly reduced. So there's a bunch of next generation banks. 
There's a bunch of next generation payments companies uh, all taking advantage of the fact that the banks charge very, very high FX fees when you're moving money from, from one country to another. Uh, TransferWise is probably one of the winners in that, but there's another company called yep. World Remit that's also doing really well. So we've seen tons mm -hmm. of activity in that space. Um, and then the rest of it is, um, I would say it's pretty fragmented. Uh, you know, everything that you would see in Silicon Valley, uh, we're seeing as well. It's just we may not see the same density, right? Instead of seeing 20 companies in the same space, we may see two companies in the same space. But, you know, what we found is most of the good ideas, they're kind of global ideas. So when people discover them in California, there's a really good chance that they may get discovered as well in, in Europe. So we've seen interesting infrastructure companies, um, dealing with containers and Docker. Uh, we've seen interesting you know, B2B companies uh, in all kinds of spaces. There's a very active software as a service. There's tons of HR technology companies uh, that we've mm -hmm. seen um, trying to help blue-collar workers, for instance, get jobs as opposed to white-collar workers, which is already done. And it's all because you know, blue-collar workers have smartphones now, so maybe there's a better way instead of typing in a CV for a blue-collar worker maybe to do a video interview. Um, so we've seen tons of diversity, um, and it's uh, it's kind of random. We never know what our next deal is going to be or what space it's going to come from. It's just very, very, very hard for us to predict that. Um, uh, mm -hmm. What we tend to do is we, no, we tend um, to see... I was going to say, we have a lot of um, adoption over the years in India, We've been very active and very kind of high impact in developing the Indian startup ecosystem. And a lot of the early work in India was concept arbitrage from American ideas. And, and, and that's, that's still true. There's a lot of that going on. There are new ideas coming out that leverage, um, you know, some of the uniqueness of the Indian market as well. So I, I imagine that the same thing is happening in Europe um, now that, you know, that same kind of concept arbitrage, high-velocity concept arbitrage is happening in Europe as well. So we definitely had that. In fact, there was a, there was a fairly you know, famous or infamous company called Rocket Internet, which is originally German, sure. and, uh, that yeah. started their entire investment thesis was, we will take an yeah. idea that created in right. the U.S. and then copycat it. Um, and they were very successful. And unfortunately, because they were so successful in doing this, they did it very well with Groupon. And they built a company which they then sold back to Groupon. Um, because they were so successful, uh, they caught the attention of the next generation American companies. And some of those founders said, look, we don't want our model, our business model to get replicated. Uh, if it does, you know, we're leaving money on the table. So the next one that they tried to do, the next big one, was Airbnb. And what Airbnb did was it went off and hired a bunch of ex-Rocket people and decided to scale globally before someone else could copy them and scale globally. And as a result, mm -hmm. that arbitrage that Rocket was, was, was riding on kind of went away. And so for the last mm -hmm. few years, what Rocket has done is mostly done these copycat businesses, not in Europe, but in the rest of the world, Nigeria, Southeast Asia, et cetera, where there actually mm -hmm. is real friction not a great investment strategy because those businesses are much harder to build. So they're harder to build, they're harder to scale. Harder to build, harder to scale. Those 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 markets, you know, they're not as online. They're, the friction in the market is just much right, more significant right, than it would right. be in Europe. So it's a tougher business. Um, 
And as a result, I think the message in Europe is that it's because it's harder, because the Americans have come in, or the American business is the original business for this new market, the winner has gone much more global from day one. It's harder for people to try and copycat. So we've seen a migration away from, there was a wave, maybe the first year of our fund, maybe the second year of our fund, where a lot of people are still trying to do copycat businesses, so basically be like rockets. That's no longer in, in, in favor. Um, and even Deliveroo, uh, you know, the rocket guys decided to clone that business, and Deliveroo got very aggressive about scaling internationally and went Hong Kong, Singapore, you know, uh, Dubai, much, much quicker as a result of that. And in many ways, the rocket guys did a service uh, to, to the leading companies in the space because they raised the competition game, which meant everyone else had to raise the bar. And if you were capable of raising the bar, right, you, you tended to go global much faster. So... Uh, and so it's it's out of favor, I think, in Europe to try and just take an American business and, mm-hmm. and copy it. Uh, that that was definitely true, like I said, like you know, four years ago, maybe five years ago, less true today. Yeah. And how do you process the current investment climate where capital is moving further and further upstream? You know, we have we are in the era of uh, much larger funds. I mean, of course the. The biggest of those is the SoftBank Vision Fund, which has you know, come into the market like a tsunami. But um, it, it's, a cha- it's a trend. A lot of the established venture funds are raising very big funds. So how does a seed investor mitigate the Series A gap and play in this kind of a market where the desire uh, or the requirements of the Series A investors are quite, you know, they, they almost feel like Series B, Series C types of requirements. Yeah, so it's interesting. So Europe has chronically been an underfunded economy when it comes to venture or or technology investing. So these global trends um, don't always apply in the same respect in Europe as they do, say, in the the U.S. Uh, There isn't as much money. Even India, I would argue, has more money uh, available to technology companies uh, than Europe does. so I think the Indian uh, startup ecosystem is much larger than uh, Europe right now. Uh, it is, but then when you look at the global unicorns, the, you know, the companies that are, that are worth a billion plus, and you look at where they're coming from, uh, we have a big spreadsheet that kind of monitors this. About 50% of them are from the U.S., about 25 maybe 30% are from China. And then, you know, uh, India is about 4%, uh, Israel is about 1%, and, and Europe is about 15%. So there's, I think, a more thriving community in India of, of entrepreneurship. But in terms of the value creation, I think Europe actually punches way above its weight. But unfortunately, Europe just doesn't have the money sometimes to, to, to turn even more of these companies into winners. And, and the gap for us isn't, isn't, uh, isn't even just on the Series A side. It's also on the Series B side. So here in Europe, if you have a business that is working very well and the model is pretty proven – Tons of people will line up uh, to write the check. But if you're still a venture-type business, but you need a $10 million check or a $15 million check or even a $30 million check to kind of build something out, it's very difficult to raise that money. So, you know, we have this artificial intelligence healthcare company 
that's trying to replace the primary care physician, the general practitioner, the family doctor, uh, or augment that doctor with an artificial intelligence engine so that the engine is doing some of the diagnostic work alongside of the doctor, you know, it takes quite a bit of money to build that technology and to make it robust yep. and, and actually usable. You can't do it for one or $2 million. Um, it took about 24 million pounds. And it's hard to, to raise that kind of money. So despite the soft banks, et cetera, the world now wants that company starts proving itself, we signed a big deal with the NHS, and now you can register for our service to be your doctor, um, which is fantastic. And we're, we're adding, you know, we're, we're adding quite a bit of users every single day. Now we get a ton of interest from people who want to invest. But everything prior, I think, is difficult. And so difficult, we yeah. as a small fund, you know, really worry about where that next $5 million, $10 million, $15 million check is going to come from. Because if the company doesn't raise that money, then sometimes it can't grow into what it could. Yeah, you're screwed. Grow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and in okay. Europe, there's just not that much money. Uh-huh. There's, just not, yeah. there's not a risk-taking appetite in Europe the same way there is in, 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 in the U.S. or in China or even in India, right, where people have yeah. become really wealthy and have seen their friends and peers become really wealthy in the tech business. Well, I think the, the truth actually is India is not a hugely risk-taking um, culture at all. What is happening in India is because the cost structure is low, there's a tremendous amount of bootstrapping that goes on. So there's a there are a lot of companies that are you know basically scrapping together little businesses and getting to some degree of validation, which can then attract some funding which is harder yep. to do in, in Europe because the cost structure is not low at all, right? And the uh, and the, the benefits and everything and the labor laws, everything has a lot of friction still. And, and that's yeah. what makes it harder for Europeans to be scrappy. Well, the other, the other two observations with India is India is still a market that can, that can grow exponentially just as a whole, right? The same way. Yes, that is correct. Group. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of appetite to invest behind that trend. It's kind of a mega trend. And, and then India has a very – there are tons of Indians who've gone to Silicon Valley and, and succeeded. I mean, both, you know, the CEO of Microsoft and Google are, are Indian, you know, Indians, you know, who um, – so that link back to Silicon Valley is actually pretty big. So people do know you can get rich yes. in the tech industry. And, and Europe right. – Europe doesn't have it doesn't have the mega trend. I mean, it's a developed economy, and to be fair, its growth rate is pretty anemic as a as a whole. And weirdly yes. enough, the tech industry is really good, but the the macro economy is not so good. And, and then we don't have the same link uh, as as we should with with California because you know if you're German, you know there's not that much of reason for you to go to Germ to go to Silicon Valley, right? You should just stay in Germany. Yeah. So, so we need more of those corridors built uh, to America. Right. And I would argue in the next century, in the next decade. You need more of those quarters built with China, and it's fascinating to me how China, how the Chinese companies are very active in India, and they're only now just starting to become active in Europe. I think that's going to be super yeah. interesting in the next ten years. It's going to be interesting, yeah. And how do you parse unicorn mania? So we have obviously Silicon Valley went crazy for a few years, and now we are starting to sober up a bit, and uh, <laughs> um, people are not as wildly crazy about unicorn mania. But as a seed investor, you could get buried under later stage liquidation preferences, especially in a difficult funding environment where you know there's not a lot of appetite. How do you protect yourself? Yeah, I mean, the the honest answer is you can't, right? You're you're trying to pick best in class companies, and you hope you're picking the companies that won't need to raise so much capital 
at bad terms that you get crushed. Um, you know, knock on wood, Europe doesn't have the same financing community, so that there's not a lot. You know, there's there's not just a lot of this money. So, you know, you could get hurt because the money could come at bad terms. But knock on wood, our our companies have generally raised from pretty high quality investors, um, and the companies themselves have been some of the exceptions. Uh, you know, they're the blockbusters. And the blockbusters tend not to usually get hurt as much. Uh, maybe that's a little, that's been less true in India with Flipkart, et cetera, who are kind of iconic. But, you know, in, in Europe, the blockbusters are still able to, to, to get the interest of multiple people. And then I think in India, the price. blockbusters yeah. are actually getting hurt by unicorn mania big time. Um, yeah. I think it's been very of, unhealthy. But I think, you know, that, that one of the big differences between Europe and India is because there's been so much capital in India, people were able to run negative contribution margin businesses because the capital could suck, you know, could soak up the losses and they could keep raising. There was a, a while where they could keep raising these monies and run an unsustainable business on the back of the fact that there was capital willing to let, allow it to do that. In Europe... Weirdly enough, because there's not that much money, people are very focused, much more so sometimes on the microeconomics and making healthy businesses, sometimes to their own peril, right? Which in the long run is a much better strategy. And and I think uh, actually India is getting back into the more fundamentals driven model, which I thought was always going to be the case. I think there was just a period where people got sidetracked, but I think India is going to be more like Europe uh, going forward. It's only here in Silicon Valley that we still see some appetite for, um, you know, funding a lot of red ink, which uh, I think most of the rest of the world doesn't have that appetite. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think the, the biggest the biggest challenge sometimes on the European side is that on the European side, if people only focus on the economics and making the businesses very sustainable, and sometimes that comes with a trade-off for growth, it gets harder to, to turn into a big business. Um, you become a very good business, but you become a very good small business. And so there's a there's a bit of both, right? You need to have a very solid business, but you also have to know when to step on the gas sometimes and take on losses. Um, unfortunately, because there's just not as much money in this economy here, people don't tend to do the stepping on the gas nearly as much as they would you know, in other places where the money encourages them to do You're not seeing much... Um American money flow into um, the European later stage deals? Yeah, in fact, almost, I would say like almost 60% of the European transactions, like financing rounds that are 20 million and above, are, are American funds. American it tells funds. tells you a lot That's about what the, I would state of the, the European. Yeah, but, it's, but remember, if you're sitting in Europe, it's hard to convince you know, a top tier American yeah. investor to invest in you, especially if you're still a younger company. Because mm-hmm. they're going to have to travel. Yeah, it's tough, definitely. So, uh, definitely. so it's hard, but but most of the, most of the companies here, like like I said, about sixty percent are, are American financed, uh, especially for for these for these bigger checks. So I'm talking to, as you know, I'm talking to a lot of investors, and um, one of the questions I ask, especially the funds that are off Silicon Valley funds, is that we are in 2018. You know, lots of stuff have already been built. Nowadays, there aren't so many wide open opportunities out there to build these very large companies, but there are many niche opportunities, and some of these businesses need to be built for small amounts of capital, you know, one to two million sold for 10, 15 million, maybe some even smaller, 250, 500K sell for five to 10 million. And what I uh, 
feel is that, you know, building a channel is very expensive. So let's say you have a cybersecurity company, establishing a new channel for a new cybersecurity company is very, very difficult. It is a lot easier to go to market through one of the existing challenge, uh, channels of a Palo Alto Networks or a Collis or whatever that already has invested in that. So these kinds of deals where you have built something, you've built a product, you've got your validation, some customers to scale, you basically exit into something um, a larger company that a strategic uh, investor may willing, be willing to buy you for. Do you have appetite for these kinds of investments? No. So we're very focused on this new product or new category because our feeling is that when you're in a, an existing category, an existing market, as a new company, even if you're 20, 30, 40% better than the market, you're, you're lost in the noise. It, it's just very hard, right? And it, it's very expensive to establish yourself. Um, whereas in a new market, the incumbents are sometimes asleep. And if that new market itself grows exponentially and becomes a big market and you do well, you can kind of ride that curve up and, and, and turn into a winner. You know, I, I hear a lot of poo-pooing uh, on every, you know, every like five to 10 years that, you know, the world's run out of ideas and new markets. And people said that, you know, in the mid 2000s and then mobile came out and social came out. You know, you start to hear it today as well because those those categories are now fully flushed out. Um, so people say there are no more new categories. But then, you know, there's a bunch of stuff happening on the Bitcoin world uh, or on the crypto world. There's a bunch of stuff happening on the autonomous driving world. You know, I'm not convinced that new markets or new categories are, 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 are dead. The hardest part, I think, for a venture guy is is to ask us what these new markets and new categories are going to be. We're really good at pattern detection, really good at figuring out when they happen. We're not so good at figuring out what they're going to be because, in all honesty, sure. if we could figure them out, we'd probably go build that business ourselves, right? <laughs> so we're good at figuring, we're good at recognizing them, but we're not so good at inventing them. So I all have right. to trust that, that you know, the entrepreneurs who come and pitch us will find these things. But I am pretty convinced that the, at a high level that these things continue to exist. Yeah, very good. Um, any parting comments for uh, investors, uh, for actually entrepreneurs who may be interested in working with you? No, I mean, so we're 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 very approachable, right? You know, I'm, I'm available on Twitter. You know, I check my emails all the time. I check, you know, LinkedIn, et cetera. Um, you know, we we love talking to folks. Again, you know, we don't think there's enough innovation uh, in Europe or enough financings in Europe. So if anyone's working on something that looks like a a new category or a new new market category uh, in Europe. You know, we're we're all ears, right? We'd love to meet with them. All right. Well, um, thank you very much, uh, Hussein, for being on the show today. Thank you, listeners, for um, participating, and uh, be sure to stop by at one of our uh, weekly free roundtables if you can um, make the time. If you're looking for mentoring, it's a great place to get free mentoring. And you need to go to our website, 1mby1m.com, and sign up on the free public roundtables page. Look forward to working with you on one of these uh, upcoming working sessions. See you soon at the next podcast.